invite, I was in, uh, uh, welcoming a couple people back to church, and they kind of looked at me and said, well, welcome back to you too. So um, I have been Presbyterian for the last two weeks uh, at uh, St. Charles Presbyterian Church. So uh, their pastor was on vacation, and uh, and it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of nice for me because the church is only three minutes from my house. So I get to sleep in just a little bit when I preach over at the Presbyterian Church. And the first week, just so you know, I slept in apparently a little bit too long because at 9.20 they had me on the phone saying, are you coming for our 9.30 service? I was in Christ church mode thinking 10 o'clock. <laughs> so doesn't necessarily uh, uh, work real well. So um, it, really, really interesting. Um, you know, we have been, uh, I don't know how many weeks now, you know, eight weeks maybe, somewhere in there, uh, in the book of, of, uh, of First John. And uh, it, Frankly, the pastor could have ended it last week, and it would have been just fine. But there's this pesky little verse at the very end of the, the, the entire book that I suspect he wanted to throw off at me. So, <laughs> so he asked if I would take it on. Uh, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's read now uh, the conclusion of, um, of 1 John. And we're going to, be, we're going to uh, begin reading at, uh, at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Because the one who was born of God keeps him safe, um, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Amen. Right? I mean, it didn't feel like the book is done there. Like I finished my letter and then I don't know if, you know, it's like, you know, if you, if you use a word processor or you, you use Google Docs, or, right, you could just go keep going. Oh, let me start the next letter. So it's almost like as an afterthought or maybe the beginning of his next letter, like, right, you know, he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle John, for your spirit that inspired him to write what we read today. We pray for that same spirit that we may learn from you today. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart may truly be acceptable, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're all familiar with warning signs, right? Um, you know, I used to work over in London quite a bit, and some of you who have uh, have, have traveled to London, you know, will know if you go on the the, uh, the, the subways there, the tube lines there, uh, when they pull up, you hear an announcement that says, "Mind the," yeah, we've heard it, even if we haven't been, there, we've heard it. Mind the gap, you know. Uh, they're very conscious over there, like they really think you can't take care of yourself. I mean, if you're watching TV. And uh, some, you know, a, a scene is going to come on that has a lot of flash photography or something like that. They warn you ahead of time. You know, like, like a, apparently people have seizures all over that country because they want to warn you, look away, look away, right? So, you know, England is one of these countries uh, where there's just warnings all over the place. It's kind of funny, right? Well, but we know warnings even in our own lives. Think of yourself as a parent, right? Uh, how many times did you say to your child or when you were a child, did your mother say to you, don't eat that now. You're going to ruin your dinner, right? Only now at our age, we say, don't eat that now. It's too close to 
bedtime, right? I mean, you know that, you know, that whole thing, right? You know, right? You have warnings, right? We know about warnings. Um, oh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a few of us had the opportunity to drive uh, through Scotland together, and uh, there were five of us continually warning one driver <laughs> to stay in the left lane. <laughs> Thankfully, Doug heeded our, our warnings throughout the entire trip, and uh, and. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, warnings are there to keep us in, in the right place. Well, I want to share a warning with you that, that will always stick in my head. And it's, it's a long time ago. I mean, in fact, Annika was just, what, maybe two years old, three years old. Aaron was, was one year old. So we're going back a long ways. Uh, Annika will be 30 this year. Um, if we took our first trip uh, as a family to Europe, and it was one of these cheap pastor budget trips, you know, we flew... Uh, cheap Iceland air and, you know, uh, rented a really cheap car and we found the cheapest place to stay in Meyerhofen where we wanted to ski. And, uh, and so we skied in Meyerhofen as a family and we went up the ski center. We went to a place called Hunter, uh, Huntertuxer Glacier, right? The, the Hintertux Glacier. Uh, it's the only place actually in Europe that you can ski 365 days a year because it's, it's on a glacier. I mean, this snow is so cold, it's blue, literally. Like when you ski there, you look down, it's blue. <laughs> That's how cold it is, right? And it is a glacier. And uh, while we were skiing, uh, beautiful. I mean, you could just see the Alps in front of you. It was absolutely gorgeous. I wanted to sing, you know, forever, uh, you know. But uh, we were skiing, and there was a, a, a line on our right-hand side, and there was a sign. And I don't want to tell you what the sign said. I've actually got somebody who's going to help me say what the sign said. So... This is Ferguson. What did the sign say? Now, let's hear that again. Yes. We want to hear it again, right? Halt. Wenn Sie hier Ski fahren, dann sterben Sie. All right. Now, we all understood the first word, halt, right? That one we can understand. The rest of it said basically like this, and I'll, and I'll just paraphrase. If you ski past this line, you will die. Thank you. Right? It sounds a whole lot more foreboding in German, doesn't it? Um, but thankfully, it came a little picture <laughs> of somebody falling off a cliff so you could get the halt and the idea all in one sign. You knew this is a warning. Don't go here. Thank God for warnings. We didn't go there. Now, John has just written a wonderful letter to dearly beloved children of his, And at the very end of that letter, he puts up a warning sign, halt, don't even go there. Now, when I look at that, like I said, it, it sounded like it was the beginning of the next letter and his scribe just messed up. And then I thought, I started to think about it and I thought, maybe this one little verse is actually the application of what we've been reading over the last eight weeks. Maybe it's his way of saying, here's a way that you can sort of put into practice everything we've been talking about in the past eight weeks. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is a summary of application. Maybe it's something that's so important to him that he couldn't not say it. Dear children, beloved, Little children, kindred, 
stay away from idols. Idolatry is not something that we think about much today, is it? We don't think about it. Um, you know, a, a, a bunch of years ago, our uh, our niece, Karianne, who had studied Japanese in, uh, in her high school, uh, went to Japan as a high school student to spend a year studying there, or a semester, or whatever. I'll get the details wrong, but the story will be right. Um, and while she was there, she was staying with a family, uh, a, a Japanese family, who you know probably didn't speak much English. She was really put into a difficult situation. And one of the things she wanted to do while she was there was study martial arts. Makes sense. You're in Japan, right? You want to study the martial arts as part of the culture. So she signed up for a class. Well, at the beginning of every class, they had to stand up and they had to bow before an idol. It was part of the class. It was part of the culture. And she refused to do it. High school girl, obviously not Japanese, being tall, pasty white, and red hair. <laughs> right? Already sticking out in a society. You would think the first thing you would want to do is get down as low as possible so that you didn't look so obvious to everybody. But she knew that this was more than just a cultural acceptance. That the folks were actually paying homage to something that they saw being a deity that was not the God of truth, was not the true God. And so she knew in her heart of hearts she couldn't do that. Every ounce of her wanted to, to have the cultural experience, to be part of the group, right? To honor the people around them. All good reasons. But because she knew that it was going to be an affront to the true God, she couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. We don't think of idolatry much today because we're not put in a situation where we need to bow before something like Nebuchadnezzar made the three bow before the great idol. We don't have those things in our life. And yet... We're called to bow before idols every single day, every single hour, and probably every single minute of our lives. We really unpack the whole concept of idolatry. Idolatry is a central theme in Scripture, and yet we don't think so much about it. It's the very center of Hebrew faith. Shema o Israel, Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad, the Lord your God, the Lord is one true God. That's the essential faith of the Hebrew people. That's the essential faith of Christianity. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me, the Ten Commandments starts. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a... Here's a word you're not going to like, but you know it's there. I am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Don't you think jealousy is something that we should not be? But the Bible describes God as a jealous God. 
unabashedly, unashamedly, God is a jealous God. He wants not a part of us. He wants all of us. He's a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to listen to this because you don't like the language, I know, because it's the 21st century. Right? God says, I'm going to punish to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He says, I'm going to love how many generations? Thousand generations of those who love me. God is a jealous God, but make no mistake, His love is greater than His anger. But don't forget that God is a jealous God. wants not a part of us, but He wants the whole. Deuteronomy 17. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, by transgressing God's covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And if it is true and the thing certain, this detestable thing that has been done, God is describing idolatry. And he says it's to be totally destroyed. Now, it's difficult because the language for us is difficult. In the Old Testament, that person is to be taken out. And if there are three witnesses against that person, not one, right? This is not hearsay. God's saying, I'm not taking this lightly. I don't want you to go pretending that people are being idol, you know, idolaters when they're not. But if there's no mistake about it, you can't put up with it. That person has to die. That's how central idolatry was in the Old Testament. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name which I have not commanded him to speak. Now, here's a difficult one. Now we're talking about, you know, a pastor, a preacher, right? A religious leader. If someone comes and he says something presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded them to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, then that prophet shall die. No, God's not going to even put up with it from his, his own priests. He's not putting up with idolatry. So idolatry is not just, it's not this idea of just bowing down to some graven image, right? It's also the idea that I can speak presumptuously on behalf of God, outside of His Word. That's idolatry. It's taking His power as part of mine. Exodus 22, He who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Now, listen to what it doesn't say. Anybody who sacrifices to other gods but also is, you know, kind of cool with, you know, Yahweh, they'll be okay, right? No. Not even mixing our allegiances is acceptable to a God who is jealous. And we don't like to talk about idolatry because the language is really tough. You know, we'd rather have that language of, you know, me and Jesus isn't everything cool, right? I mean, we sang Blessed Assurance, and there's a truth there, right? Although when I was in seminary, I have to say, I had a, I had a, um, I had a, <laughs> I had a teacher who would say, that should not be in a Reformed hymnal, because, you know, Jesus is not mine, I'm his. 
right? So we should be singing, Blessed Assurance, we are Jesus's. That just doesn't flow quite as well. All right. But there is a blessed assurance here that John wants us to know about. So what is, an, what is idolatry and, and what is an, an idol? First of all, I think it's obvious from the text that we read that idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God. It's the ultimate expression of being unfaithful to God. Just think of that term, faithful. You know, in every moment, in every conversation, are we being faithful to God? Are we being faithful to His command to love? Are we being faithful to His love for us? Are we being faithful to His purposes? Or am I doing something different in this moment that places God's purposes below my own, where I forget Him? Idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God. We already know that idolatry provokes God's jealousy because we're stepping away from Him. And He desperately desires communion with us. An idol is an object of worship. An idol is an object of trust. It's an object of devotion. It's an object of love. Think about that. What in your life do you worship in addition to God? What, what has value, right? Worship is, is coming before and saying, God, you are holy and you are valuable uh, you know, above all else. So what else in your life do you say, oh, this is valuable, this is holy above all else, right? And there are things all over our lives, and it might be something different for each of us. There are things in our lives that we value, and we use that term a lot, value. I'm a software salesman. We use the term value all the time, right? We want to increase the value in your business, right? We have, there are things that we value, that we think are important. And when we think back to the Old Testament, where when, it wasn't even, do you value God amongst other things? These are the five things I value in my life, God and what other four? Well, no, 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 no not even supposed to be mixed. Not in that same sense. But we mix it all the time. And the way we mix it is by admixing it. Right? We say, well, by valuing that, I am valuing God. Right? By valuing the Constitution of the United States, I'm valuing God. By valuing my education, I am valuing God. By valuing my family, I am valuing God. That's what family values is all about. Right? Valuing the things that are important to me, wrapping them with God and with religious language is idolatry. Right? We need to remember that. Anything that we worship, trust, devote ourselves to, or love on the same level as God is idolatry. I heard an, a fascinating uh, conversation on uh, NPR recently by... I'm just going to say a Jewish atheist. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and this guy was talking to a Methodist pastor, trying to understand why is it so important to God that we love him? What does he care? And he couldn't get it through his head. He said, I get that God would want to, you know, obedience. I get that God is for good things and not for bad things, and so we should do 
good things, but what does God care if we love him? I mean, is he that needy? The Bible doesn't even ask that question, does it? It just simply says, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. He created you. He wants you to love him. What's so bad about that? That's what the Bible says. He's a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says, Indeed, you are not to bow down and worship to any other God, because the Lord's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Idols are described in the Bible as false, as powerless, as weak, as worthless, and as unclean. That's what an idol is in the scriptures. Now, I want to, here's, here's what's interesting. That's what an idol is. So if you look up the Greek equivalent of the word idol, that's the, de- that's the definition of idol. And, and in, the, in, you know, in the scriptures, idol is never used in a good context. You know, oh, he's my idol. No, never used in a good context. But it's also not used by Greek people outside of the Bible. They don't use the word idol. No, you know what they use? They use a word, agalma. Agalma is an image. And it, it has uh, pizzazz, right? So when they go into their temples to worship in agalma, it has pizzazz. It's beautiful. It has power. It's wonderful, right? Because the, this is where the world is worshiping. They're not going to call their God worthless. They're going to call their God beautiful. They're not going to call their God weak. They're going to call their God strong, right? So they use a totally different word so that there's power in the culture for idols. Idolatry is indeed a kingpin in all of scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I think that's why John included this at the end of this text. He goes, you like all of this love conversation, love God, obey God, love each other. If you're living in love, you're living in God. But I want to tell you what I've just defined is the Hebrew concept of idolatry. This is it. Because if God is not number one, you're not living in love to God. And if you're not living in love to God, you can't live in love to one another. So if God is not number one in your life, you can't love other people the way that John is calling you to love them in the the entire rest of the book. It's a linchpin. You pull that out, the whole thing falls apart. It's idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now here's the list, right? And you've got to understand, when you go to lists in the, in, the, in the scriptures, you know, they're not definitive lists. They're, they're examples, okay? So, you know, let's not be going, you know, all, you know, what's a sin and what's not a sin, because that's just such a waste of time, right? So don't get me wrong going with that stuff, okay? And, uh, and I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, but there's no such thing as mortal sins and, and not mortal sins. Just, just saying, okay? And here's, here's where we'll read that, right? He goes... Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, here's the problem. I've always read this, and and when I got to the end, said, oh, greed is idolatry. No, no, no. The whole sentence is. Right? Get rid of all of these things in your life, because it's all idolatry. And it's not that, you don't get rid of them because they are idolatry. 
you get rid of idolatry. Idolatry leads to all of these things. It leads to sexual immorality. I know, that sounds like prudish to say, doesn't it? I'm being a prude now, right? No. So here's what happened. And, and, and the, the Corinthians knew this, okay? When you went to the pagan church in the town of Corinth, you'd have some singing, you'd have some dancing, you'd take a five-minute break in the middle of all that and greet one another. Then you'd come back. I'm kidding, right? Then you'd come back to worship, right? You, you, would, you, would, uh, um, you would probably expound some Platonic philosophy or something so people knew how smart you were. Then you would sit down and you'd have a meal. You'd eat meat that had already been uh, sacrificed to the idol. And when you were done with a meal, you would get up and have an orgy. I'm serious. That was worship in a pagan church. So idolatry and sexual immorality were, were intrinsically linked. Paul's not being a prude when he says this. He's saying they're intrinsically linked. So at some point in that equation, even in our world, which values sexual or uh, uh, which values you know sexual freedom in license, it's linked to idolatry. Just saying God is not number one. They're linked. Now, there are two primary models for idolatry, right? I'm going to share these two and then, and then some, uh, some, exam- some, some things that we can do uh, before we close. But these two models, I think, are very interesting. So when you look at idolatry in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, there are two basic models. The first, and they have to do with our relationship to God, understandably, right? So the first way that the Bible speaks about our relationship to God is very much like a marriage. In fact, we sang it in the songs today, didn't we? Right? That we are the bride, you know, we're waiting for the bridegroom, right? So one of those definitions of our relationship to God is that God is the bridegroom, right? And we are the bride. We are the bride of Christ. Israel was the bride of God. So what happens then in a marriage, you expect total love and devotion in that marriage, don't you? What happens when one person in that marriage decides to go out to the bar, have a conversation with somebody else, and ends up in a hotel room with that person? What do we call that? We call it adultery. That's one model of idolatry in the scriptures. Because we are married to God, God expects our total love and devotion. And when we step out on him, he treats it like adultery, right? You just have to read the, the prophets, and you'll see that in, uh, in the prophets, right? Um, so that, uh, look at Hosea and Hosea's wife. Remember, we went, uh, those of you who have been around for a while, we did all the minor prophets a couple years ago, right? We get into the Hosea, and he had a wife who became a prostitute. And, and what happens when, when, a, when a man is cuckolded like that, Right? I don't care whether you're watching a movie, reading a novel, or, you know, reading the Bible, right? That man becomes very angry, has a fierce desire for revenge, right? Because that's what drives all those great movies, uh, right? You know, fierce for, for revenge, but then at the same time has a strong urge to win her back. That's the movie of Hosea, the prophet, which was just an example of God when his people step out on him. 
He gets angry. Why? Because he's a jealous God. But his love is so much greater than his anger, so he just wants to bring them back. Right? So that's the first model of idolatry. It's stepping out in marriage. The second model of idolatry is that God is king. He's the ultimate political power. And when we start playing with other powers in our life that aren't God, we are committing treason. Now let me ask you a question. What is, what is the punishment for treason in most societies? Yeah. It's death. Didn't John say last week that there was a sin that leads to death? Hmm, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying. I don't know, right? Treason leads to death. Idolatry is the ultimate uh, rejection of God. And so it ultimately leads to death because we deny God and we reject him. In the political realm, Israel's desire for a king is seen by God as idolatry. They want a king because they don't want God as their king anymore. It's treasonous. It's idolatry to them. The prophets denounced the, uh, the, 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 the pacts that, that Israel wanted to have with Egypt. And they accused Israel of prostituting themselves with the Assyrians. Why? Because they were looking for security someplace other than God. Right? In Revelations, God is seen as a ruler over all the world against whom? Against Rome. Rome is the beast in Revelation. Rome could be us today, for all that matters. Because the U.S. is the number one power in the world today, like Rome was back then. And if we're going to put our trust in the power of our government, guess what? It's treasonous in the kingdom of God. We're committing treason against God when we put that level of trust in our own government. As a king, God demands complete loyalty and unmixed devotion. When we mix God with worldly powers like the Romans did, we commit treason. When we wrap the flag up in the Bible or vice versa, we commit treason against God. When the Second Amendment becomes more important to us than the protection of the innocent, we commit treason against God. These are the things that become more important in our lives than God does. I mean, I have some of those things too. I have this spreadsheet on my computer. I don't know if you all have one. It's my timeline to uh, retirement. It's a pretty long timeline right now because, you know, <laughs> there's not that much at the end of that spreadsheet. When I trust in that, more than I trust in God to provide, I commit treason against the king. Because I'm committing in some, I'm, I'm trusting in something other than God to provide my security and to provide for me. Well, let's go back to the glacier real quick. Thankfully, that sign was there. And not only was that sign there, because I would have been freaked out. If all I saw was that sign, I would say, oh my God, where do I ski? But thankfully, that sign came with a line. And I knew that as long as I stayed inside the piste, right, the ski lines, I had total freedom. I could ski wherever I wanted to inside those lines. I could do the moguls, right? I could do the nice broad runs. I could do the fast ones. I could do the slow ones, right? I had total freedom inside those lines, and it was great. And the only reason I had that much freedom is because, thankfully, some smart Austrian had put that sign there. Thankfully. I got a new car the other day. Now, I'm not du I'm Dutch, so it's not a new car. It's three years old. But 
has a little bit newer technology. Do you know that when I'm driving down the lane, when I'm driving down the highway, if I go just a little bit this way, beep, 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 I get a little warning. Little children, stay away from idols. So that beep, beep was saying. That's why John put that there. Because he wanted us to understand where the lanes were. To be able to stay within the knowledge of God. John says, we know that anyone born of God, they don't continue to sin. Yeah, they might veer over the line a little bit, but God's going to bring them back. They don't continue to sin. They play with it a little bit, because that's our nature. But if they're in God, they're going to be in that lane, right? Anyone, The one who was born of God, our Lord, Jesus Christ, keeps us safe. It's that lane, right? Keeps us safe. He gives us understanding. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. So what do we need to do? It seems to me the entire reason John wrote the book of John, of 1 John, was to encourage us to be in deep communion with God and to deeply love one another. The whole book was written so that we would obey the first and second greatest commandments, as Jesus said. That we would love God with a depth that would keep us away from idolatry. And that that would lead us to love one another with the same kind of love that God has for us. That's it. Stay away from idols, he says. How do we do that? By loving God deeply. So I think in our own lives, we need to learn how do we grow in that love. I don't think it's a, it's not just a state has changed. Not, you know, now we're loved by God before we weren't. That's not the point. The point is that we have this whole depth of love that we're being called on to explore and dive deeper and deeper. And God's calling to us that to us, that we might live in that fullness of life that John talks about and stay away from idols. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are the true God. We thank you for the warning signs that you give to us around idols in our life, things that become more important than you. And we thank you for the depth of life that you offer to those who say no to those other things that are false and weak and powerless and untrue. Help us, Lord, to live in that line and grow deep in what you have for us as individuals and as a congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.